and welcome back to Minimed Pods. My name is Xiao. I am your host today. Unfortunately, Simran was unable to join us for this episode, but don't worry, she'll be back real soon. Today, I would like to go over a favorite of ours, the cardiovascular exam. This is a very commonly performed examination and you will see variations of it on the ward, on the floor, and you'll most certainly be asked to perform a cardiovascular exam, be it in an OSCE setting or in a hospital setting during toots and rounds. The way I've structured this podcast is I've divided it into two parts. The first part is really short. It's basically going to be an outline and summary of the cardiovascular exam. And then part two will be a more in-depth explanation where you can sort of simulate a little discussion between you and myself um, and we'll talk about technique, interpretation, as well as tips and tricks. The reason why I've done this is my hope is that you guys as a listener can listen to the whole episode and basically get the nuance and familiarize yourself with the cardiovascular exam the first time you listen to it. Then hopefully in the future you'll return to this episode and use that really short outline as a memory tool. Part 1. The cardiovascular exam as an outline. Start by introducing yourself and gaining consent. Once the patient is happy for you to proceed, begin with looking at their general appearance. Note whether they're looking well or unwell. Check their work of breathing, look at their body habitus, comment if there's any cachexia. Then look for physical characteristics of Marfan's Downs and Turner syndrome. Next, move on to the hands and look for peripheral cardiovascular signs. So look for clubbing and peripheral signs of infective endocarditis. This includes splinter hemorrhages, Ojla nodes, and Janeway lesions. Also look for xanthomata on the hands. Now look for pulses. So the most common pulse is the radial pulse. Comment on the rate, regularity, and quality of the pulse. Look for radial radial and radial femoral delay. Now take the blood pressure. Consider also taking other parts of observations, including respirate, SpO2, and temperature. Moving on to the face, starting with the eyes, don't forget to comment on scleral icterus, xanthalasmata, and arcus semelis. Then looking at the cheeks for mitral facies, also known as malar flush. Looking at the mouth for high arched palate, mucosal petechiae, and central cyanosis. Moving on to the neck, Comment on the carotid pulse, auscultate for carotid bruise, and look at the JVP as well as the hepatojugular reflex. Finally, we're on to the precordium. Here, start with inspecting scars, the chest shape, looking to see if there's any pacemaker or defibrillator in situ. Then palpate for the apex feet, parasternal impulses, and thrills. Now auscultate for heart sounds and comment if there are any additional heartbeats or murmurs. If you do hear a murmur, it's common to perform maneuvers. Moving on to the back, auscultate the lung bases and palpate for sacral edema. Last two areas is the abdomen and the calf. In the abdomen, palpate the liver, spleen and aorta and percuss for ascites. Finally, the calf, look for peripheral edema and calf tenderness and consider performing a peripheral cardiovascular exam. Extra things that you can complete to finalize the cardiovascular exam is a fundus exam, urinalysis, ECG, chest x-ray, 
and echocardiogram. Part two, just a general, in-depth explanation and hopefully discussion about the cardiovascular exam. So we started off with general appearance, and I think with general appearance, it's one of those things that we all are still learning in trusting our guts and just looking at the patient's general state because there is actually a lot of evidence that states that if you think that the patient is looking unwell and feeling unwell, most likely you're correct. And that's sort of a trigger to start escalating to senior staff members. Then you appreciate the breathing, checking to see if it's rapid or labored, and also their body habitus. So cachexia, although commonly associated with cancer, is also associated with severe cardiac failure. And this is due to the fact that the liver is usually very enlarged by the time that they're in severe cardiac failure, and the enlargement of the liver ends up taking space that the stomach usually takes, and they don't usually feel very hungry, and they become anorexic, um, and also because the liver is so big, it also impairs in, uh, nutrition absorption. Next, looking at the syndrome. So if you're not familiar with the syndromes, Marfan syndrome is an inherited genetic disorder that affects connective tissues. It's physically characterized by a tall, lean stature, disproportionately long limbs and fingers, uh, pectus excavatum, as well as a high arched palate. It all, unfortunately also affects internal structures and specifically for the heart, it's the connective tissues that support the heart valves. So patients with Marfan's are at higher risk of getting aortic regurgitation as well as mitral valve prolapse. Along with the heart abnormalities, they can also get vessel abnormality. So two uh, things I think is really critical to be aware of because they're potentially life-threatening is conditions such as aortic aneurysm and aortic dissection. As opposed to Marfan syndrome, Downs and Turners are spontaneous genetic aberrations, meaning they're not inherited. And Down syndrome is also known as trisomy 21, meaning that they have three twin, uh, chromosome 21 instead of two. This causes multiple abnormalities in multiple systems, specifically to the cardiovascular. Uh, infants born with Down syndrome are more likely to have congenital heart disease, in particular atrioventricular septal defect. Turner syndrome are babies that are born with one X sex chromosome as opposed to XX or XY and they also are at a higher risk of congenital heart disease in particular bicuspid aortic valve and coarctication. In the hands we looked at clubbing Interestingly, clubbing is a sign that physicians seem to always look for. It's, I know it's in the respiratory exam as well as the gastro exam. Clubbing is kind of, the pathophysiology of clubbing is not really well known yet, but uh, be aware that some registrars and some consultants are very particular in the way that they check for clubbing. So it can be assessed in a number of ways. The way I was taught is by looking at the hands up close and then basically turning them towards your side so you can appreciate if the nail is pointing forwards or downwards. If the nail is pointing downwards, then it's a sign of clubbing. The other way to assess it is shamrock signs. And this can be done by holding your nails facing one another, almost as if you're trying to make a heart shape with your fingers. If you're unable to see the diamond shaped gap in between the nails, it indicates clubbing. 
Next, the three signs of infective endocarditis. I like to group them into three. So there's splinter hemorrhages, Ojla nodes, and Janeway lesions. And just a little tip for you guys, the difference between Ojla nodes and Janeway lesions is Ojla nodes are painful, and that's because there's an active inflammatory process. Um, whereas Janeway lesions are sort of just colored spots. It almost looks like moles. Xanthomata is a lipid deposit or cholesterol deposit in the hand and it's usually associated with familial hyperlipidemia as opposed to the lifestyle one that is more common. Then um, arterial pulses, my tip to you guys is don't be psyched out with people who have gone through coronary uh, artery bypass. So I have met a couple of patients who have their radial artery grafted which means that they don't have a radial pulse usually you can either check on the other side or alternatively use the um, ulnar artery so according to Tally O'Connor the radial pulse should be assessed over 30 seconds don't forget to comment on rate rhythm and strength uh, rate is normally 60 to 100 any slower is bradycardia and any faster is tachycardia rhythm can be described as regular or irregular. And if you want to take it a step further, you can talk about the pattern of irregularity. So is it irregular every three beats and then you have one normal beat? Or is it irregularly irregular? And can you guys know, guess which heartbeat that is very common is usually uh, associated with an irregularly irregular pulse? That's right, it's AF, atrial fibrillation. Then um, you can also comment on strength, whether it's strong versus weak. Radial radial delay and radial femoral delay is mostly associated with coartication, but it can happen in dissection of the thoracic aorta as well. Moving on to blood pressure, the normal values for systolic is 90 to 140, whereas diastolic is 60 to 190. So the tips I can give you is uh, the cuff should be fitted snug on the arm, and it shouldn't inflate. I have made a couple of mistakes and the way I caught it was because the cuff was turning puffy. If that's the case, uh, just start again. Don't forget to deflate the cuff. Sometimes it's because we, you've accidentally popped it on the other way around, which is easy to do, or sometimes it's because it's, it's the wrong size. So ensure that the cuff is also at the level of the heart. So make sure that the patient's arm is not flexed too far forward. And then some contraindications to keep in mind is post mastectomy, um, in particular the arm, that's the ipsilateral side, uh, and an arterial venous fistula. Also consider performing postural hypertension. And the way to do this is check when you're lying down and then get them to stand up and after one minute check again. According to Talia O'Connor, a fall of 15 systolic or 10 in diastolic is significant but some clinicians prefer a fall of 20 systolic as the number to indicate significance. Moving on towards the face, so scleral icterus, which is the yellowing of the sclera, is commonly associated with jaundice and liver failure, but can also happen in some congestive uh, cardiac failure. Xanthelasmata is basically the eye version of xanthomata, and these are cholesterol deposits around the eye. This can be quite common and can be physiological, um, but it's something to comment on. 
Acacinellis is basically a half or complete grey circle of the iris and it's a sign that clinicians believe is associated with an increased risk of ischemic heart disease. Moving on to the cheeks, so I talked about mitral facies. Uh, these are rosy cheeks with a bluish tinge. It's a rare sign, I've personally never seen it before, but it's associated with pulmonary hypertension as well as severe mitral stenosis. The high arch palate is associated with Marfan syndrome, which we talked about earlier, and petechiae of the mucosa of the mouth is associated with infective endocarditis. Central cyanosis, I think, is a pretty easy thing to check. So it's look at the ellipse and look at the bottom of your tongue. It's a really good indication of central hypoxia. Now we're finally moving on to the neck. So have a feel of the person's carotid pulse and just like the radial pulse, comment on the rate, rhythm, as well as strength. And then auscultate for bruise. And sometimes when you auscultate, you can also hear radiation of cardiac murmurs. Um, a tip from Talia O'Connor is basically remember to ask the patient to hold their breath or else you may not be able to hear those bruise. And yes, use the bell because bruise are low sounds. Okay, now the JBP and the hepatojugular reflex. This is really key on a cardiovascular ward, so I really encourage you guys, if you're on the cardio ward, to watch a registrar or a consultant perform them. The basics that I can, the basic tips that I can sort of give you guys is stand always to the right side of the patient, right side because the right um, internal jugular it drains most directly to the right atrium, whereas the left jugular has to go through uh, another vessel before it goes into the right atrium. Position the patient lying on the bed with the bed head at 45 degrees and ask the patient to look slightly to the left. What you're looking for is a double flicker near the two heads of the sternocleidomastoid. You may also realize if, if the person has really severe congestive heart failure, you might have to trace up the neck and you might also want to look at the bottom of their ear because I have seen a double flicker near the bottom of the ear sometimes. You can then check to make sure that this double flicker is not an artery by checking for a pulse. The way you interpret the JVP is by assessing its height and you check it from the sternal angle and what you want to do is draw an imaginary line perpendicular to the floor. Uh, if it's anywhere above three centimeters that is an indication of right ventricular failure or general fluid overload. So going back to the fluid exam episode that we did last time you can also have an increased JVP in renal as well as liver conditions. Checking for abdominojugular reflex, which is the new name for hepatojugular reflex, is you want to press the abdomen where approximately where the liver is, watch the JVP rise and count how long it takes to descend. If the JVP stays elevated in position for about 10 seconds, it indicates heart failure. And what you're checking for here is by pressing on the abdomen, you're increasing venous return to the right atrium. If it decreases, it means that the right atrium or the right heart is able to compensate for the increase in blood volume. If it's still staying out there, it means that this right heart is really struggling and it's unable to accommodate or increase its function to help push um, the increased blood flow from the right side to the left side. Okay, so before we move on from JVP, I just want to let you guys know that there are a couple of buzzwords. So 
the double flickers do have names. The first flicker is called the A wave and the second flicker is called the B wave. Now the descents also have names as well, but this is beyond the scope of today's podcast. Some buzzwords I would like to teach you is if uh, they're talking about absent A waves, this is associated with atrial fibrillation. Canon A waves are associated with complete heart block, whereas giant A waves is associated with tricuspid stenosis. Talking about V waves, large V waves are associated with tricuspid regurgitation. All right, so those are the buzzwords that I have for you in terms of JVP. So let's finally move on to the chest. So inspect the chest for any scars, notably stenotomies or thoracotomies. Then look at the chest shape for pectus excavatum and kyphoscoliosis, which is associated with Marfan's. Then you can either look or feel for a pacemaker or cardioverter slash defibrillator box. So the pacemaker is sort of, I think, less than a centimeter. Uh, and the cardioverter slash defibrillator box is slightly bigger. And this will be located underneath the left pex. Then palpate for an apex beat, which is located in the midclavicular line in the fifth intercostal space. It's normal for 50% of the patient population to not have a palpable apex beat. But if it's not palpable, don't forget to feel around the area because maybe instead of it being absent, it's displaced. And if it's displaced, this is a significant sign because it's an indication of an enlarged heart. You can also palpate for parasternal impulses. This can also be called parasternal heaves by placing your hand on the left side of the sternum. If you can feel the heart basically beating against your hand, this is a sign of right ventricular enlargement. Then palpate for thrills over the four valves. And the four valves, the location is, the mitral valve is where the apex beat was, so the fifth intercostal space in the midclavicular line. The tricuspid valve is usually in the fourth or fifth, I like fourth personally, um, intercostal space at the lower left sternal edge. Then your pulmonary valve is in the second intercostal space at the left sternal edge. And your aortic valve is in the second intercostal space at the right sternal edge. And that's also the order in which you want to palpate and listen to the heartbeats, which brings on to our next action, which is listening to the heartbeats. So starting with the mitral, the mitral is a bit special. You want to use both the bell and the diaphragm. So the bell, as I hinted to before, listens for lower pitch noises. And uh, the reason why you want to use it on mitral is because mitral stenosis is usually quite a low and soft sound. And the bell is better for appreciating that sound as opposed to the diaphragm. So start with the mitral. And then with the tricuspid pulmonary aortic valve, it's up to you whether you want to use the bell as well as the diaphragm, but usually you can just use the diaphragm. So appreciate the heart sounds, the loves and the dubs. When you're starting off, listen to a whole heap of people with normal sounds. So that can be your friend, your parent, your family members. And then when you're on the ward, start listening to abnormal sounds. And the abnormal sounds that you can hear is things like extra heart sounds. So there's the third heart sound, which is commonly associated with the word Kentucky. Um, we're not really American. So I, who have a music background, like to change it into like Kadai music words. So if you guys went to an Australian music school, hopefully you've heard of TTs and Tars. So the third heart sound will sound like this. Ta, ti, ti, ta, ti, ti, ta, ti, ti. It almost sounds like a horse galloping across the fields. 
So the third heart sound is associated with an increased cardiac output. It can be physiological, notably in athletes as well as pregnant women, but it can also be pathophysiological. So it can happen in left ventricular failure as well as a left ventricular dilation. And you might even be able to hear a third heart sound when someone is going through a STEMI. The fourth heart sound is also a three heart sound noise. It's commonly associated with the word Tennessee, but I'm going to try to make it into music terms again. So instead of ta, tt, which is the third heart sound, it's tt-ta, tt-ta. That's why they use Tennessee, Tennessee. The fourth heart sound is always pathological and it implies that the heart is, has a poor ventricular compliance. Other heart sounds that you might hear is heart murmurs. Now, murmurs can go on forever. There are obviously people who specialize in murmurs. I think in this medical student level, the best thing is to appreciate the difference between systolic and diastolic murmurs, and then learn a few systolic murmurs and a few diastolic murmurs. So the way to appreciate whether it's systolic or diastolic is when you're listening to the heart, put your hand on a pulse. If the pulse is beating with the murmur, then it's a systolic murmur. Whereas if it's in between the pulse, then it's a diastolic murmur. There are a few systolic murmurs that I think are important to remember. So aortic stenosis, mitral and tricuspid regurgitation are the more common of the systolic murmurs. A particularly aortic stenosis, which is probably in majority of the older population. Aortic stenosis is more commonly known as uh, the ejection systolic murmur, and it likes to radiate through the carotids. And I think this will probably, it's my, the first murmur I ever heard, and I think this will probably be the first murmur that you ever heard as well. It's quite a nice murmur, it's like a whoosh dove. Um, check onto YouTube and you'll be able to find lots and lots of videos on aortic stenosis. The mitral regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation, this one is quite different because it's more of a pan-systolic murmur. So you end up losing the lub-dub. It's really difficult personally for me to hear the lub-dub and it sounds like one whoosh. So it's like a whoosh, 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 as opposed to a lub-dub, which you can kind of appreciate in aortic stenosis. So the way to differentiate mitral and tricuspid regurgitation is with mitral regurgitation, the sound likes to radiate to the axilla, indicating that the blood is flowing backwards towards the axilla, whereas tricuspid regurgitation has a radiation upwards to the left sternum. Along with that, you also can get a pulsatile liver. Um, again, it's all about blood flow. Blood is flowing backwards, and so you're getting that radiation towards um, the left sternum where the right atrium is. Okay, moving on to diastolic murmurs. Diastolic murmurs are slightly rarer, so you've got two, aortic regurgitation and mitral stenosis, which I think are more common um, as opposed to the other murmurs that you can get. So aortic regurgitation is commonly described as an early diastolic with a decrescendo quality. Again, with radiation, it's all about the blood flow. So if the blood is going backwards through the aortic valve, it ends up radiating sound to down towards the left sternal border. Whereas mitral stenosis is commonly described as pre-systolic and it's a decrescendo crescendo murmur, 
Mind you, I don't think I have the capacity to listen to the decrescendo, but you can definitely appreciate the crescendo murmur. And what it does is it crescendos to S1, which symbolizes where systolic starts, and that's why it gets its name pre-systolic. Mitral stenosis is special in the sense that it's a low pitch sound, and it's, one, it's the one that's best appreciated with the bell as opposed to the diaphragm. So if you do hear a murmur, other things to help you is things like maneuvers. Um, so Tally O'Connor has a number of maneuvers that you can perform. So there's inspiration, which increases blood flow back towards the heart. So you end up, you end up increasing right heart sounds and expression does the opposite. Um, it ends up increasing the left heart sounds. You also have the left lateral lie, which can increase the mitral sounds because you're basically trying to tilt your heart closer to the chest wall by leaning on your left. Then you can also do forward lean, which has the same uh, theory behind it. So if you forward lean, you're tilting the base of your heart closer towards your chest wall and you can usually appreciate aortic and pulmonary murmurs better. Then you have three others that I've never personally seen before. There's standing to squatting, squatting to standing, an isometric exercise, oh, and Valsava as well. Look, I've never seen these ones before, so please let me know in the comments of either on Facebook um, or uh, send me an email. I want to know if you guys have actually seen standing, squatting, squatting to standing, isometric exercises, and Valsava used as a maneuver in um, appreciating murmurs better. Okay, moving on from the chest, go towards the back now. Auscultate the base of the lungs, and what you're trying to listen for is pan inspiratory crackles for pulmonary edema. Then you can also uh, palpate the sacrum to look for sacral edema. And this is as opposed to peripheral edema, which is your legs. Um, sacral edema is very common um, area for water to pull in patients who are recumbent. Whereas peripheral edema, which is what we're going to move on later, is common in patients who spend most of their time sitting or standing. Moving on to the abdomen, palpate the liver for hepatomegaly, and you can also palpate the liver for pulsatile liver for, what did I just say just now? That's right, tricuspid regurgitation, and splenomegaly for infective endocarditis. Looking for triple A, abdominal aortic aneurysm. You can do this by getting the patient to breathe in, breathe out, get them to relax whilst they're lying on their back and feeling to see if their aorta is pulsatile and if it's expansile. So the expansile component is what's going to give you an appreciation of the aneurysm, whereas the pulsatile is basically to indicate that yes, you have found the abdominal aorta. Now looking for ascites. So you can do this two ways, either via shifting donors or fluid thrill. Lastly, moving on to the calf, look for peripheral edema. So this again is where water likes to pull, um, especially in patients who are sitting a lot or standing a lot. And uh, sometimes I get peripheral edema because I spend like nine hours sitting on my computer <laughs> making podcasts. So you can also check it on yourself or better yet, go to the ward and check for peripheral edema on all the patients who are sitting. You can look for calf tenderness and this can be a good differential if you're suspecting DVTs and PEs. That's a good cause of chest pain and cardiovascular-like symptoms. And you can consider performing a peripheral vascular exam. This will be for another episode because that's a whole nother exam that we can talk about.
to finish your exam, consider performing a fundus exam and a urinalysis. So in Tally O'Connor, urinalysis and these these sorry, these two bedside exams are associated with infective endocarditis. I also think you can use the fundus exam to look for hypertensive changes because you can actually see that at the back of your eye. Another bedside test you can perform is an ECG, which looks at the electrical activity of the heart. In terms of imaging, you can perform a chest x-ray as well as an echocardiogram. And the rest of the imaging will usually depend on what you found and what you're suspecting and what your differentials are. Okay, thank you so much for listening. I know it was a lengthy journey. Hopefully you were able to learn a few new tips and tricks and bring all your newfound knowledge towards your patient as well as your friends. If you like this episode, don't forget to give us a like on our Facebook page. That's Mini MedPods, M-I-N-I-M-E-D-P-O-D-S. And if you want to, why don't send us a message and tell us what you thought about it. Oh, yes, definitely tell me if you've seen all those maneuvers on the wards and let us know what you want to hear next. Well, for now, that's all from me. Thank you so much. Simmer will be back soon, don't worry. Thank you so much for listening to my voice for about half an hour now. I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.